Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abirachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat and for this opportunity for us to gather together as Mishpacha's family to worship before you, to encounter you, and to hear from you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard and received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have uh, ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, breathe new life in us today so that we may leave this place transformed, changed, ready to impact the world around us with the good news, the besor of Yeshua Mashiach. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. So this morning we are in uh, Parsha Chayisara, which comes from uh, Genesis chapter 23, verse 1 uh, through 25, 18. This is um, a really interesting Parsha for, for a bunch of reasons. But if you pay attention to the, the names that each Parsha has, um, the name is based off of the first significant word or words in the first line of the Parsha. So in this case, it's Chayisara. It's the life of Sarah. But the thing that's most interesting about the Parsha named Chayisara is that it begins with her death, right? And I've always looked at this and went, that's kind of that's weird that it's called the life of Sarah, but it, it really begins with her death, and that's all we read about her in this Parsha. Uh, but the reality is, is that I think the, the general message that's going with this name of the Parsha, Chayisara, is that Sarah's life wasn't necessarily what was amassed and experienced and such while she was alive. But Sarah's life, as is the case with ours, is defined realistically by what we leave behind, right? So we look at Sarah's life and we go forward after the, her, her death, her burial, and we see the story begin to shift to her son Isaac, who last week we read about the binding of Isaac, and this week we read about the death of Sarah, and then the beginning of Isaac's family as he goes forward. And then from Isaac, we go to Jacob. And from Jacob, we go to the 12 tribes. And from the 12 tribes, we go to the nation of Israel as a whole. And then from the nation of Israel as a whole, we go to what we know as the body of Messiah today. And as all of this is progressing, we see this idea, as we say in Hebrew, from generation to generation. Uh, and I think that's really important for us to understand because as far as I'm concerned, my life in general doesn't matter if I don't leave a legacy for the Lord behind. And I'm not talking a legacy of what I'm remembered for, but a legacy of lives that have impacted children that were raised to love the Lord, and so on and so forth. And that's what we see with Sarah, is the Parsha name Chaya Sarah begins with the legacy of faith that she leaves behind. Um, as we look at Sarah's life in general, we see that eh, there were some iffy moments in her faith, right? She laughs at God. God says she's going to give She laughs in his face uh, and then lies about it when he heard her do it. So we see there's some iffy moments, but, but she leaves a legacy of faith behind. And it's a, a really powerful uh, image there. And I was actually going to talk this morning uh, about the idea of, of uh, specificity in prayer. Right? When we look at Eliezer's prayer as he's sent by Abraham to go find a wife for, for Isaac back in uh, Abraham's homeland, back from among his family, uh, Eliezer goes and he prays his very specific prayer. And I'm, I'm always impacted by the reality of how specific and intentional the prayer was and how it says very blatantly before he finished speaking, 
God had already provided the answer, right? And that's a, that's a powerful, that'll preach, right? That's a powerful message right there. Before we, if we're specific in our prayers, we understand what we need and we're following the will of the Lord. When, when we are specific in prayer, God will meet our needs and more often than not, it's before we ever even finish praying. But even more so, I would go so far as to say it's before we ever realize exactly what it is we need in the first place. But then this morning as we were in worship, I really got, you know, every once in a while this happens. Most of you know me. I'm kind of sporadic anyways. Every once in a while this will happen where I have a plan of what I think the message is going to be. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the message or in the middle of the service, that all gets thrown out the window and that doesn't matter anymore. Well, this is one of those lovely weeks. And so this week uh, we are going to talk out of Parsha Chaye Sarah, but we're going to look at it a little bit different. Uh, and we're going to look at what I think is actually a very powerful reality in the spiritual realm of what is happening as we look at the development of the nation of Israel from the descendancy of Abraham, right? And, and that idea is one of rivalry, right? We look at this Parsha, and you may be going, well, what in this Parsha gives us, where do we see rivalry? I mean, maybe if we go back to, to Isaac and Ishmael in, in, in last week's Parsha and the Parsha before, maybe we go back to Isaac and Ishmael, we could talk about rivalry. And, and maybe if we go to Jacob and Esau in, in a, a few chapters, we can deal with rivalry. But where's the rivalry here in Chayserah? Where's the rivalry that we see? If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to uh, Genesis chapter 24. Uh, this is where uh, Eliezer is sent. Abraham says, I want you to go back to my homeland. I want you to go back to my father's house, and I want you to find a bride for Isaac there. And Eliezer goes, his most trusted servant goes, okay, well, let me ask you this. What happens if I, if I don't find one? Um, and, or, or what happens if I do find one and she won't come, come back with me? What do I do? And he says, then you're off the hook. doesn't matter. Isaac does not go back. Isaac stays in the promise of Adonai. He does not go back. And so Eliezer goes, okay, uh, as long as I'm going to be off the hook, if this doesn't pan out, okay, it'll be all right. So Eliezer, keep in mind, Eliezer, for most of his service to Abraham, thought he was going to get the firstborn rights and inheritance. Even though he wasn't actually a son of Abraham, he was as close of a son that Abraham had until Isaac came along. Now there was Ishmael, but Ishmael wasn't part of the promise. Uh, he, we do see that idea of redemption, but he wasn't part of the promise. And so Eliezer thought everything was going to be his, but his heart and service to his master was one that was so fervently out of love that when Isaac came along, he cared about Isaac and the future of Abraham's lineage and the future of Abraham's legacy that he was going to leave behind. So Eliezer understands this. Uh, we see this idea of Abraham's life and faith impacting Eliezer. Eliezer goes back to, uh, to, to um, Abraham's homeland, back to where Abraham called him out of from Chaldees, and says, hey, um, I'm going to go sit at this well. And I'm, I'm kind of giving you the paraphrase of it before we get to the rivalry. But he's, he sees this well. He says, I'm going to sit at this well, and I'm going to wait till the, the young ladies from the, the villages come uh, to, to draw water from it. There's a certain time of day that they would come to draw water. And he goes, I'm going to wait for, one of the, for some of the young ladies to come up, and I'm going to approach one. And I'm going to say, Father, uh, I want you to, to, to make this happen, that when I approach her and say, uh, can I have a drink of water? If she says, I will not only give you a drink of water, and I will not only water your camels, but I will continue to water them until they are filled, until they are satisfied. Uh, then I will know for sure that this is the one that you have brought. And before he finishes praying, before he finishes speaking, all of a sudden here approaches uh, Rebecca. And as she comes up, he walks up to her and he says, hey, can I have a drink of water? And she goes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll get you water. I'll make sure you're satisfied. I'll make sure all your camels are satisfied. Anybody ever done research on a camel? Yeah, they 
drink a lot. They can drink up to, depending on the type of camel, up to 53 gallons in 13 minutes or less. Up to 53 gallons of water in 13 minutes or less. They can go for weeks on end without water, which means when they finally do get water, they are very thirsty. They can go months on end without food. And when they finally find, get to eat, they go nonstop. Like they are uh, uh, very crazy in the way they eat because they're hungry and they want to grab. Now, if there's a period of time where they have access easily to food, it doesn't quite work that way. But when it comes to drinking water, they can drink up to 53 gallons per camel in 13 minutes or less. Imagine signing on for that. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you got something to drink and I'll take care of all your camels too. 53 gallons per camel that she's going to draw water out of a well for. If that's not an answer to prayer, I don't know what is. He was very specific in the prayer and that prayer was very specifically answered and here he immediately, as soon as this all happens, he pulls out a nose ring. Would you ever wonder why all of a sudden the random discussion of a nose ring pops up? Like it's very, he didn't say, it didn't just say he gave her some jewelry. It says he gave her a nose ring and a bunch of other stuff. Right? The nose ring was what was specific. It's because in the ancient Near East, a nose ring was a sign of engagement. Right? So all of our young ladies walking around with their noses pierced. <laughs> no, uh, just joking. I don't really care about that. But that was in the ancient Near East. That was a sign of engagement. And so instantly he went, you're marked. <laughs> you are uh, going to be uh, Isaac's wife. And he had perfect faith in it because he prayed. God answered that prayer very specifically. And so the next thing we see is that Eliezer, uh, Rebecca takes Eliezer back to her house. And uh, Eliezer approaches, uh, the, she, he finds out whose family she is. He goes back to their house. And they go, hey, this is awesome. You're from my, uh, from my brother or my, my uncle's Nahor was his, his father. You're from his family. This is Betuel, which is uh, Abraham's brother. Uh, he goes, you're from my, my brother's household. Let's, let's go back. We'll get you some food. We'll get you squared away. And, and they set food in front of him to eat. And he goes, before I eat, I got to talk. Let me explain to you what's happening. I need to make sure before I sit down and eat that we are all clear on what's happening right now because she's going with me. Um, and he explains to her exactly what Abraham said, exactly what he came to do, exactly what he prayed, and exactly what she did. And they said, well, clearly God is with you. Clearly this was God's thing and, and take her with you. So he eats, he stays with them that night. The next morning he gets up and he says um, in verse, this is Genesis chapter 24, verse uh, 55. The next morning he gets up and he gets ready to go and he says, all right, it's time for me to go. Let's, uh, he grabs Rebecca, he grabs everything and says, let's get out of here. And her brother stands up, verse 55, but her brother with her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days or 10. It's good math. Let her stay a couple of days. 10, 20, 30. Let's just, we'll take your goods and we'll send her maybe at some point. Uh, let her stay for a few days or 10. Afterwards, she may go. Verse 56, but he said, Eliezer said to them, don't delay me since Adonai has made my way successful. Send me off so that I can go to my master. They said, so they said, we'll call the young woman and let's ask her opinion. By the way, didn't happen very often in the ancient Near East. You didn't ask your daughter what her opinion was you told her what her opinion was going to be. I'm not saying that's what it should be like. I'm not saying that was good. I'm just letting you see how powerful of a reality of the way that God works outside of our ways, of the way that God works. So they say, let's call the young woman and let's ask her opinion. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? 
She said, I will go. So they sent Rebekah, their sister, off with her nanny and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your seed possess the gates of those who hate him. Now, we're talking about rivalry. And I'm sure at this point you're going, crap, are you talking about rivalry for? I don't see it. You know who her brother is? You know who Rebekah's brother is? Laban. In just a few chapters, we're going to read about Laban again. When Jacob goes to Laban's house, Bethuel is gone. Laban is now in charge. He goes to Laban's house, and we see the whole 21 years to try and, and, and finally get Rebe- uh, Rachel and finally get what he deserves, and he's got to run away in the middle of the night because Laban didn't want to let it go. We see the beginnings of that here. Remember, this is Abraham's family. Bethuel, Laban, and Rebekah's father is Abraham's brother. Now, if you put two and two together today, this sounds really weird. Back then, not so much, but today it sounds really weird, all right? So this is Abraham's brother and his children. This is, they had the same father. Nahor was their father, all right? And this is very close-knit family. They understand what God, but I imagine that Abraham packing up in the middle of the night and jetting out because God said go didn't rub his family the right way. I imagine there were some, some hard feelings and some bad blood that was left behind. I imagine that Laban heard this story maybe twice, three times removed from the reality of what happened, and Laban's got hard feelings because the Abraham abandoned the family, especially considering how wealthy Abraham, Abraham had become, and that word would have spread from there. And so here we see Laban, who later on becomes a big part of this picture. We see Laban here, and we see the beginnings of this rivalry. And this rivalry is really an image of the nation of Israel, or the Jewish people as we know today, and the nations. This is a rivalry that goes way back. Because this is a rivalry that birthed a lot of other problems. And we see over and over again in the scriptures that there's this idea of rivalry that plays out. We already mentioned Isaac and Ishmael, right? And then we get to Jacob and Esau, and Esau gets mad at Jacob and mad at his parents. And what does Jacob, what does Esau do? He runs and marries Ishmael's daughters. And through Ishmael and Esau, we get a large number, a vast majority of Israel's ultimate enemies that are now part of this picture, all because of rivalries. We see uh, as we go forward, uh, the, as we talk about in our Haftorah Parsha that we read this morning, we see this rivalry between uh, Solomon and Adonijah, right? We see this rivalry that's going on. Solomon was the one who the anointing of the kingship authority was to go through. He was the child of promise, and the anointing was to go through him. Yet here is Adonijah that is saying, well, I'm just going to sit on the throne. Nobody else is sitting there. He's about, Pops is about dead. Somebody's got to take, I'm going to take charge. It's, it's mine. Absalom's gone. It's now my turn. I'm going to take charge. And notice he doesn't take any of David's closest people. He doesn't take the mighty men to come join him and to elevate him. There's this rivalry of the promises of God, of the reality of what is the seed of Messiah and everything else in the world. We go to Adam and Eve and we see as uh, Adam and Eve, they have children and then those children rival and they, one kills the other and then they have another one and through them comes the, the reality of the seed that was spoken to Adam. Through your seed, the enemy's head would be crushed. And we see this message of seed over and over again. Abraham got the message of seed. Through your seed, the entire world would be blessed. Through your seed, salvation will come. Restoration will come. The same promise is given to Isaac. The same promise is given to Jacob. The same promise is given all the way through the history of Israel until we get to uh, to, uh, to, to Melch David, to King David. And then the, the seed is not just this 
uh, vast majority of the nation of Israel that could carry it, but now we see that this lineage carries through to David. And then that lineage goes from David all the way through to Yeshua, who is in fact the seed of promise, who is in fact the seed that the world is against, the, the enemy is in rivalry with. We go back to creation and we realize that the enemy was in rivalry with us because he wanted to sit on the throne of God and he couldn't. He wanted to be like God. He thought he could be God and he couldn't. And he gets cast out of heaven and all of a sudden God creates humanity, who he specifically says he has created in his image and likeness. And he's given authority over things of this world too, which is what the enemy wanted. He wanted authority. He wanted to be like God. He wanted authority. And here God creates humanity for the sole purpose of being the image and likeness of God and having authority over things of this world that we would align things of this world with the things of heaven. And the enemy comes in and he's got this rivalry going on and all of a sudden he tricks Adam and Eve into giving up their authority and Adam and Eve let it go and it goes to the enemy who snatches it like uh, Adonijah, there we go, uh, <laughs> got a little close to some uh, uh, Iranian politicians for a second there, uh, but Adonijah tries to do the same thing, he tries to snatch that authority away. And ultimately what we see is there's this grander rivalry in the spiritual realm of the enemy and the ways of God, of the enemy and the promises of God, of the enemy and the will of God. And the enemy tries to play out what he's trying to do in uh, rebelling against God and in being in this rivalry in the spiritual realm. He tries to play it out through humanity. And so he sees there's this seed that's coming that's going to produce this salvation that will restore mankind back to what we were originally created to be, which is the image and likeness of God with authority over things of this world. And he goes, okay, I've got to stop this now. I tried to stop it from happening by ruining Adam and Eve, but apparently God still had a plan. So now I've got to figure out where that plan is. I'm going to trace it through history ultimately and, and try to stop it there. And over and over and over again, he tries to stop this plan and he fails. And what you and I are experiencing in spiritual battle today is that same rivalry. You and I are drawing closer to the Lord and the enemy is going, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. You can't have what I want. I'm going to take it away from you. And every time we trip and fall, every time we give in a temptation, every time we sin, the enemy goes, see, one more. And another one bites the dust. And he's trying to take that authority away that's been restored to us. And what we see here with Laban is he is being used by the enemy. <clears throat> he is allowing himself to be used by the enemy to try and stop the seed of promise from coming, to try and stop the seed of salvation that comes through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ultimately David and Solomon and the person of Messiah Yeshua. Over and over and over again. And we can see it with the, the narrative of the 12 sons of Israel and the nation of Israel that they become and the way that they're constantly in fighting and everything that's going on. We can see it with Judah and Tamar, right? It's through this relationship that shouldn't have happened, that shouldn't have had to happen, that ends up happening. Judah and Tamar, we get the lineage of Yeshua. We see it with Ruth and Boaz, right? This relationship that biblically shouldn't have happened. She was a Moabitess. She wasn't supposed to be part of Israel. Yet the enemy is trying to constantly stop this. But here the two come together. The nations and Israel come together in the plan of God and ultimately bring forth the seed of promise that will bring restoration and salvation. And what we see in this Parsha and what we see over the next several weeks of Parsha through the end of the book of Genesis and birthing through the nation of Israel and Exodus and beyond is this great spiritual rivalry between the enemy and the promises of God. 
the promises that are ours. Not promises we have to claim as anything we did, but promises we have to take part in because of the divine hand that has provided our restoration into them. What we see ultimately with rivalry is it creates division. How many of us know rabbis, pastors, ministers of any sort that are constantly in a rivalry with somebody else? How many people did you have? I can tell you there are, there are congregational leaders that I know that I have relationship with that I don't talk about numbers with because I don't want there to be that rivalry, right? They, their congregation's not growing like ours or ours isn't experiencing what they are and I don't want there to be and I know in this dynamic of relationship there's going to be and I avoid it. There are people that when God does something awesome for my family, I just don't talk to them about it. Because I don't need that rivalry. I don't need that bitterness. I don't need that in my life. Ain't nobody got time for that. I can't deal with it. Right? And what we see over and over and over again is this division birthed from rivalry. And it's not something that you and I have against each other. It's something the enemy has against God. And he's using us as pawns in this great game of chess that he's already lost. And often we're too stupid, arrogant, prideful, whatever you want to call it, to recognize what the enemy is doing and trying to do through us. Whereas if we just give God complete and total reign, these things wouldn't happen. And as I said, what we end up seeing in the body of Messiah, especially today, that rivalry is still real. Just like Laban tried to hold uh, uh, Eliezer and Rebekah up and ultimately is able to hold up Jacob from going back to the promise of the Lord. The enemy is trying to hold you and I up. He's trying to hold the body of Messiah up. And we allow these rivalries to exist. That's why we have uh, Assemblies of God and, and we have uh, uh, United Pentecostal Church and we have Southern Baptist and Primitive Baptist and we have United Methodist and we have all of these different things that float around within Messianic Judaism. We have divisions here too. We aren't any better than anyone else. We have all of these divisions that exist because we can't just understand that the enemy's goal is to keep us broken, separated, and divided so that we can't be used by God in the way God wants to use us. Yeshua says, and we've talked about this before in John 17, verse 20, we call Matthew 6, we call that the Lord's Prayer. But the reality is, is that was just him teaching us a model of prayer. This was actually Yeshua's prayer. This was before he's getting ready to offer his life for you and I. He is crying out his heart to the Lord. And part of the last, uh, the last section of that is where he's praying for believers, not just those that were alive then, not those, just those that would be alive in the first century, but he says all of those that will be touched by these from here. Verse 20 of John 17, I pray not on behalf of these only, but also for those who believe in me through their message, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so also may they be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. The glory uh, that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them as you love me. So if it's in unity that the world will know who sent Yeshua and who sent us. If it's in unity that the world will see God in us. Who do they see when we're not in unity? Who do they see when we are broken, when we are distorted, when we are demolished? 
Who do they see when we create division after division after division and we simply call them denominations? Who do they see when we won't get together and worship as one body because of theological decisions that were made by our forefathers 100, 200, 300 years ago that realistically most of us don't understand or care about in the first place? What we want to do is see the power of God move among us. We allow these divisions to exist and we color code them and we, we whitewash them with special terms like denominations and, and theological differences and whatever else because the reality is, is we're too arrogant and prideful to say, you know what, we don't agree on this peripheral stuff, but realistically, does this peripheral stuff matter? What matters is the blood atonement of Yeshua and the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to see the world saved. The peripheral stuff doesn't, I'm going to go out on a limb here, right? I'm going to make a statement that Messianic Judaism may or may not make on a regular basis, and I think we should be more forthright with. The Torah isn't salvation. We aren't going to earn salvation by keeping kosher. It's just not going to happen. We do so because of what God's done for us, out of obedience and response to what he's done, but it does not bring salvation. So when we divide ourselves all the time, and we don't do things with the rest of the body of Messiah because they don't live like we do. Because they don't worship like we do. Because they don't follow the word of God like we do. We're separated and divided over things that don't matter. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the word of God doesn't matter. But what God wants to see is unity. And if we are divided all the time, how are we ever going to impact the rest of the body of Messiah with the fullness of the word of God if we're constantly separate from them? We go forward to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are various kinds of gifts, but the same Ruach, the same Spirit. There are various kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are various kinds of workings, but the same God who works all things in all peoples. And then he goes through some of the gifts of the Spirit and going down to verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also is Messiah, for in one Ruach, in one spirit, we are all immersed into one body, whether Jewish or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Ruach. Either we believe that there's only one God, and we serve him as one people, as one bride. Look, you don't think Messiah is coming back for 3,000 brides, do you? He's coming back for one. But we've got thousands of denominations. And many of them say all the rest are damned to hell because they don't live like we do. But is that what the Word of God says? We must be united in order to see the reality of what God has in store for the body of Messiah in these days. We must come together as one. That doesn't mean we write off the things that do make us different. Right? It's, it's not unity or uniformity. It's unity we don't have to have uniformity to be united. The reality is that we as the body of Messiah must set aside those differences like we did for Shavuot last year where we brought together churches from all over this area and had one giant Shavuot and Pentecost service as one body. As a matter of fact, we didn't even have a Shavuot service here. We got together the night before on every Shavuot and prayed for what was going to happen the next day, but we didn't have an actual service here because we were more concerned about investing in the unity of what was happening the next day on Boker Shavuot when the entire body of Messiah in this area came together as one body united in spirit and truth. 
If we can separate ourselves from allowing the enemy to use us as pawns in his great spiritual rivalry with the Lord, it's mind-blowing the way that we can actually impact the world around us and see people come to salvation. Finally, in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the worldly forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's not our battle. This spiritual rivalry that's going on between the enemy and the promises of God, it's not our fight. God's got that under control. He's already won. When we try to fight the battle for him, we're just getting in the way. He's already won this battle. All we have to do is walk in faithfulness with him and trust what he's going to do. Just like we see with Eliezer. Just like we see with Isaac last week with the, the, the binding, the Al-Qaeda, the binding of Isaac. He was perfectly okay with, all right, whatever God says, let's do it. God's got this under control. He had no doubt that him and his father were coming back off the mountain, just like Abraham had no doubt that he was coming back off the mountain with his son. He told his servants, me and the kid will come back to you in just a little bit. He said, we're coming back, no worries. He was perfectly calm, perfectly okay with either he was going to, God was going to give some sort of substitutionary sacrifice or he was going to resurrect Isaac. But Isaac was the promise. And the promise was going to go through him. He had to be alive. The reality is, is that promise has in fact come. And if you are a believer in Yeshua HaMashiach, you are bought by that promise, by the blood of the Lamb, by the true substitutionary sacrifice. Last week we read that when Abraham uh, was talking to Isaac, as Isaac said, they're walking up the mountain. Pops, we got the fire and we got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. And the thicket was a ram, not a lamb. 2,000 or 1,500 years, give or take, later, God does in fact provide himself robed in flesh as the Lamb of God to provide salvation for you and I so that you and I can get out of the chess game that the enemy is playing and losing so that we can be separated from that, be united as the body of Messiah, as the bride of Messiah so that the world can know that he did in fact send Yeshua for our sins that he did in fact give us a means to be restored and united with him. That he did give us the means to be restored in authority over things of this world. That we can, in our efforts in following the Lord, through his Ruach HaKodesh, through his Holy Spirit, see this world united with heaven. But as long as we allow the rivalry to exist, as long as we allow ourselves to be pawns in the enemy's game, as long as we continue to allow the enemy to have his way among us and create division after division after division in the body of Messiah and the bride of Messiah, we will never see the power of God move in the way that God intends for it to be. And one of the most powerful services we have ever experienced was at the Civic Center last Shavuot when the body as a whole came together united as one. And I don't think that anything that the enemy can do is something that can truly take us out of the promises that God has in store if we simply allow God to reign in our lives. The only way the enemy can mess with it is if we give him that ground, if we allow it. The only way we can be divided is if we allow it. 
And it's time that we bring these rivalries to an end. That doesn't mean that all the churches around us should all close down and we become one big giant group. That doesn't mean we should close down and join with them in one big giant group. We can all do our own thing as long as we do it united. And we can come together in unity from time to time as long as we do it united. And it doesn't have to be a competition. We don't have to be in battle with each other. We don't have to be at rivalry with each other. We don't have to be jealous of what God is doing in another community or in somebody else's life. We don't have to be jealous of what's happening because you know what? God's got stuff for you too. He's got stuff for me. He's got stuff for this congregation that other congregations may not experience, that other people may not experience. But ultimately, we are all parts of the same body. And that body cannot function if we don't walk together as one. If we don't walk together united in Yeshua, united as one body. Avarachimim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, we thank you that you have given us these patterns, these types and shadows throughout Scripture that we can look at and see the reality of this great plan that's playing out before us. Father, we thank you that you have provided salvation and atonement that we can be restored not only in unity with you, but restored in unity with one another. Father, I thank you that you have given us a call and a burden to be united as one, to be united in Messiah. Father, I thank you that <clears throat> here at Congregation Mayim Chaim and in the Messianic movement as a whole, we are a representation of that grander unity that can be experienced as we are Jew and Gentile, one united in Messiah. That we set aside the differences the enemy has tried to use in rivalry to demolish what the word of God and what the will of God is, but that we come together united as one to see the fulfillment of the promises of God, as you have said, are going to occur. Father, I pray that we be used by you, that we be willing to be used by you to see a greater unity in the body of Messiah as a whole, that we come together as one bride, waiting for our bridegroom to return, waiting to be taken under the chuppah with you, waiting to experience the wedding feast of the Lamb, and working together to see your kingdom be built here on earth, not ours. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.